Well, we are, we are going to continue our, our Advent series here. We've, uh, we've been uh, doing, we started last week, and, and you might remember Advent means coming. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a way for us to prepare our hearts and our minds to, to honor and celebrate Christ at Christmas. But more than that, for those of us who live after Christ's birth, it is a time for us to prepare and wait for him to return. And so Advent is about Christ's coming, and it's about us preparing. And, um, you know, it, it's about this time of the year. Jeff was kind of talking about his experience at Target. We were at Target yesterday, too, Jeff, and we experienced it. Well, I didn't go in. I, look at me. We. Lindsay went in, pregnant wife and all. She's the one who went in and experienced all that. Me, I was in the car driving around. All right? But it, it is chaotic, isn't it? It is, it is crowded, and, and you're, you're concerned you're going to hit people in the parking lot because they're just walking all over the place. Um, it's well. That's just me. <laughs> well, I feel that way. Okay. Um, it's this time of year that I, I really start to to struggle with something, and, and it usually happens every year. You know, it's this time of year that I, I start to long for something that that seems to be missing. Right. I I start to long for uh, there to be no more wars. You know, we're still deploying people. Uh, we're, still, we're still losing people. Uh, I, I start to feel this time of year more than other. I, I wish that would be done. I start to, I start to long for, for times where, you know, I don't turn on the news. And, and maybe, maybe you're experiencing this too, where we don't see constant protests of violence everywhere. It's ridiculous, right? It's just unrest and chaotic. And, 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 and if there was peace, then there wouldn't even be need for it this to be going on. I, I get tired of uh, this time of year, all the debates and the protests and, and all that's kind of surrounding what we're currently going on, uh, see going on, and, and people picking sides on different things. None of that would have to take place if there was peace. You know, I, I, I find myself longing for family gatherings that are real and, and, and not superficial, not, not times where we just gather and we bury things and pretend like we're all good and, and, and there's no issues, but it's not usually that way for for family gatherings. There's always issues. And there's always people who are who are hiding something just under the surface, and it's just being covered up for the sake of the season. Let's just get through the, the season. Let's just be at peace. You know, I I, I find myself last night uh, kind of closer to bedtime, and and, and I, I find myself wishing that there was no screaming in my house, that there was no whining, no fights. No kids saying words that were unkind to one another. I just want, I want peace in my, my house, you know. I want, I want peace for crying out loud, you know. But more so this time of year. I want it more this time of year. And maybe, maybe you, can, you can identify with that. I mean, you, you've probably been to family gatherings around this time of year where, where it's not like it's supposed to be. I mean, you, you know you've got issues, and, but everybody's putting on their face. And everybody's just going to get through the season, you know, and we're going to be peaceful for the sake of the season. And yet, at the end of the season, maybe your relationships are even worse because of the season, right? Uh, the, the stores, the stores kind of put us at peace, don't they? I mean, they, they drop all their prices and they say, this is, this is a deal you can't pass up. This is, this is so good. It's almost like the world's at peace, you know? There's no competition. We can just give this stuff away. It, it's that kind of, kind of feeling. You know, I mean, uh, beauty pageants and beauty pageant contestants this time of year. What's the one thing they say society most needs? World peace and harsher punishment for <laughs> All right, so, some of you will, will catch that, and some of you 
this congeniality. Okay. Peace is something we all long for. And, 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 but more so this time of year than any other time of year. We want things to be right. We know things aren't as they should be. We, we know that things aren't always going to be this way, but we're not sure if there really is any kind of peace that can overcome what we see. We're not sure there's any kind of peace that we can know. I mean, that's the question we're asking, isn't it? Is there any kind of significant peace? Is there any kind of peace that is going to put an end to everything that we see going on? Is there any kind of peace that can, that can take relationships that are just filled with, with a mess of things and smooth it out? And then there's actual peace, true peace, real peace, peace that runs deep. Peace that is, that is not superficial, just on the surface, waiting to explode in a, in a chaotic mess. Is there, is there a peace that we can know that quiets the deepest angst inside of us that for a lot of people comes up more this time of year? If there is, I would call that a pretty significant peace. I'd call that a peace that lasts, a peace that is true, a peace that runs deep. Is there that type of peace? This morning we're going to find our answer in the book of Micah, chapter 5. Book of Micah chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there should be a few uh, Bibles on your, your row there. And if you're, you're using one of those Bibles, you're going to go to page 1058. 1058. Micah's one of those books that uh, it's hard to find in your Bible. I mean, you can, you can just do the thumb thing, you know, where you kind of fan out the pages, and you'll pass it almost every time. It's just by luck if you land on it. So page 1058. Or look at your table of contents, and you'll get there a lot quicker. Micah chapter 5. And we're going to be uh, looking at verse 2 and through 4. Micah, verse 5, 2 through 4. Is there significant peace to be had, to be known, to be experienced? And Micah, what we've got going on before we reread, because we're kind of coming in at the tail end of a book, uh, Micah is one of those books that we call the prophets. It's one of those books written by a, a guy in the Old Testament who was a prophet. And that's a word I feel like I probably need to go ahead and clarify because if, if you didn't grow up around church or maybe you grew up in a church that really didn't teach the Bible a whole lot, maybe you've not heard this word, prophet, prophecy, or, or maybe you've heard it but it's never been explained. What, what is a prophecy? So uh, it can get kind of confusing when uh, we pastors get up and we start talking about prophecy because uh, it, it might conjure up in the mind, you know, putting a date on the end of the you know, it, it may be uh, something like that. But let me, let me just kind of give you a quick overview. When, when you hear a pastor or someone teaching the Bible talk about prophecy, it can actually mean a few different things. You've got you've to determine the context, right? So if we're, if we're dealing with the Old Testament and we say prophecy, there's at least three things it could possibly be. Now, we could be talking about the prophecy that most of us have come to mind, right? Where someone predicts the future. Someone, someone tells something in the Old Testament before it happens. And they're prophesying. They're, predict they're predicting something that's going to take place in the future. We could be talking about that type of prophecy. Uh, but also in the Old Testament, particularly when you have a prophet, a prophet is someone who represents God. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. God gives them a direct message, says to them, I want you to go to this people and I want you to say this. And so they go and they carry out God's message. They speak as a representative on behalf of God. They're prophesying. Uh, the first one where we predict the future, we could call that foretelling. We're telling something ahead of time, foretelling. But this one's more like foretelling. I'm telling you God's word, right? You might equate it kind of with uh, what a lot of preachers do today, right? We get up, we, we read the scripture, God's word given to us, and then we 
preach it, teach it. It's kind of more like that. Uh, and then there, there is sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes in the story of Saul and a couple other places where they talk about prophesying, and it's referring to people who are speaking in some kind of ecstatic, unexplainable, under, un, not understandable utterances. That's all I've got to say about that one. I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you about it. It's that, that they call it prophesying. We're not told what they say. Uh, you know. Uh, then you go to the New Testament, and, and, and you've got a little bit of a different view. So if a pastor or preacher is standing up, and they're talking about prophecy, but they're in the New Testament, they could be talking about prophecy from the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. Right? They may be saying, hey, this was said in the Old Testament, but now we see it coming true in the New Testament. It's a prophecy. They, they could be talking about that. It also could be a prophecy that is telling the future. Right? I mean, there's things in like the book of Revelation that we would call prophecy that are, that are talking about things that are going to happen in the future but haven't yet happened yet. Prophecy. You get to the New Testament, there's also this spiritual gift called prophecy. Right? And, and that seems to be something about this unique supernatural ability that God gives some people, believers in the church, to have special insight into people's lives where they can speak something that that person didn't reveal to them, but maybe God did, about their life, about their, about their direction in life, or something like that. It's a gift. And then also, in, in the New Testament, you might find places where it's just ecstatic utterances, right? So it, it can kind of get confusing when a pastor or preacher stands up and says, this is a prophecy. So for this morning, as we're looking at Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 4, we're talking about a prophecy, but we're talking about that Old Testament prophecy that actually speaks about something that's coming in the future. And that's kind of what makes the Bible unique and, and, and set apart from all the other religious books that people follow, is that it, it actually has things in, in some of the earlier books that they say is going to happen. And then when you get to history and the later books, you see it happen. Right? And it's not just you know, a conspiracy where the, you know, one person wrote this book and they, they pretended like it happened. You've got over 40 different people writing the books in, in, that you find in your Bible. And, and they wrote these, these 66 different books. They wrote them all over a span of time, about 1,500 years. It's not just one person writing these books. You have, you have over 40 different people writing these books. You have them writing it over 1,500 years. You know, so the first, the first books of our Bible, the earlier ones, are, are written. You know, and then 1,500 years later, you got the last one being written. That's not the same person writing that, humanly speaking. And, and you got different types of people, kings all the way down to peasants and, and common folk, people who are fishermen and uneducated. That's what makes this, this book unique, is that you've got all these different people writing about all these different things, and yet it all seamlessly ties together which is one of the reasons why we say the ultimate writer of this book is not, in fact, humans, but God, guiding humans. And so prophecy is unique for us as, as Christians because not only can we find it in our, in our Bible, but you can go to history and see things validated, like what we're going to see today, right? So Book of Micah is, is a prophet, and he, he's going through this book, and like many of the prophets, uh, they had to go tell God's people a message that was not very friendly, right? Uh, today in the church culture, we talk about seeker-sensitive churches. We want to make sure that we are friendly, we don't offend you, uh, that, that you're welcome in our, in our church doors, and that what you hear is going to uplift you, and everybody's going to walk away smiling, right? Uh, that's what we like to talk about today, uh, or today in our churches. But a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't get that kind of message. That was, not, that was not the opportunity they had. God often was saying to a prophet, hey, my people are still rebelling. My people are still choosing to worship other gods other than me. I want you to go and tell them that if they don't turn away from that, judgment's coming. 
In fact, he, he would tell some of the prophets, hey, you're going to go speak to these people, but I'm telling you, they're not even going to listen. But I want you to tell them anyway. And that was what the prophet got to do. And so Micah is one of those prophets where he's talking to God's people and he's saying, you've been rebelling. You've been worshiping other gods. You're not worshiping the very God who, you, who you're supposed to be worshiping, the God who's given you this place that you're living in, the land that you're, you, you're dwelling in. Uh, really, it's the God who delivered his people. You go to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, there's a major event that takes place. The Exodus, where God takes his people out of 400 years of slavery and he delivers them. And, and then God uses that event to define himself. The rest of the Old Testament, I am the God, the God who delivered you out of Egypt. Because it is in that account where, where God delivers his people out of Egypt and you got the ten plagues, right? Where God is actually proving to both his people and to everyone else around that he is a God who is altogether unique. He's not a God like the God of the Egyptians. He's, he's above all those gods. And each of those plagues proved that he's above those gods. And so God's saying, you're not worshiping me and this is what I've done for you. And so Mike is having to go and say, it's been going on too long. And so Micah's book is about a time in the future for God's people, Israel, where they're going to experience some judgment and they're going to be enslaved again. And so a lot of Micah's book is there's going to be a time coming. There's going to be a people who's going to come and they're going to take you away to a land that's not your own. You're, you're no longer going to have a king on the throne. The kings they already had were corrupted anyway. You know, imagine that. Corrupted politicians. You know, it, it's not a new thing. It's power. And it's people who are corrupted who get a hold of power and they want to use it for themselves. And they did. And so Mike is saying, it's not going to be long now. It's not going to be long until God's going to judge you for that sin. But like many of the prophets, there are always glimmers of hope as you read through these prophetic books. Right? There's, usually, there's usually a whole lot of judgment. This is going to happen. God's, God's going to have to punish you for that because you're violating the, the law, the code that he gave you. But then there's always a glimmer of hope. And that's what Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 4 is. A glimmer of hope in the midst of a bunch of judgment. So look with me at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. God speaking. He says, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf, on whose, one whose origins are in the distant past. Verse 3, so the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. Then the rest of the king's countrymen will return to be reunited with the people of Israel. Verse 4, he will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength. By the sovereign authority of the Lord his God, they will live securely, for at that time he will be honored. So, so verse 2, a little bit of a glimmer of hope in the midst of all this judgment, then all of a sudden God transitions just a moment and says, but, but you, and he singles out this town, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, now Ephrathah is either uh, the district that Bethlehem was, was, uh, was located in because there was more than one Bethlehem. You know, and that sometimes is a confusing thing as, as we read the Bible because there's, oftentimes there's cities named the same thing but in different locations. Like there's two Jerichos, right? And sometimes it can cause confusion. And so it, it's, it's likely that what this is is Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the district where Bethlehem that, that God's talking about was located. This is the specific Bethlehem that God is talking about. It was not an impressive city. 
It was it really, really couldn't even be called a city. I mean, it was a town. And maybe it's one of those towns that, that you might not even be likely to stop for gas if you were on a road trip. I mean, it, it's not even that good, you know, because you're not sure you can trust the gas station, you know, to have good gas. Or really, the bathrooms wouldn't be that good for you. You know, I mean, whatever it is, it, it really wasn't a town that was going to make it on your, on your radar. And God said, but it's from you, Bethlehem. Smallest of all cities, uh, seemingly insignificant. It's from you that I'm going to raise up a king. And there's your glimmer of hope. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Other people are going to rule over you. You're not going to have a king on the throne. But Bethlehem, you, the smaller town, the one that nobody notices, I'm actually going to raise a king up from you, is what he says in verse 2. This king will emerge and rule over Israel on my behalf. One whose origins are in the distant path, in the distant past. God is, God is offering his people mercy in the midst of judgment. He's telling them about a time of peace that's going to come, even though right now they're headed towards chaos. God said it's from Bethlehem. And, and, and Bethlehem is insignificant, it's small, but there's something about Bethlehem that would have perked people's ears up. You see, when, when Israel started having kings, their first king was Saul. But their second king, their greatest king, the one that you would likely know about, if, even if you haven't grown up around church, is King David. Right? The one who wrote a lot of the Psalms. King David was born in Bethlehem. The greatest king Israel has ever known. The, the one who God had a, a unique and special relationship with because David, as, as the, the scripture says, was like a man after God's own heart. Bethlehem was his hometown. And so, so when God speaks in the midst of this judgment, and he says, but you, Bethlehem, I'm going to raise a king up for you. Ears perk up. Wait a minute. We've known a king from Bethlehem. He was pretty good. It was under that king that, that Israel grew a whole lot. It was under that king that Israel experienced a lot of their, uh, their growth and their expansion. And it was a good king, a good leader. Not like the corrupted leaders that they find themselves in at this point when Micah's writing. It's from Bethlehem. And so God identifies the very place where he's going to bring his king from. That's the prophecy that I was talking about this morning. That's, that's the prophecy where oftentimes we don't read the rest of the verses, but we'll go straight to chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah, and we say, see, this is exactly where Jesus will be born. In Bethlehem. And he was. And so... Micah's writing 750 years before, before Jesus was ever born. And he's, he's, he's relaying this message from God, and he's saying, from Beth, uh, Bethlehem, a king is going to come. God's king. You fast forward to the New Testament, book of Matthew, and you see Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem by a strange a set of events. They had to go back to, to Joseph's hometown because the... the, the uh, the Caesar wanted a census done. I want to take account of how many people I have in, under me. So go back to your hometown and, and record yourself. So they traveled to Bethlehem. That's where Mary ends up having Jesus. And so through this, this set of events, we've got this prophecy 750 years before Christ is ever born. Micah's saying, by, by God's direct revelation, hey, it's from Bethlehem a king's going to come. That's what makes this book so unique. Is, is you can go and outside of this book, you can look at history books that are written by atheists, 
And you can find that there was a guy named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. And this guy, regardless of what you believe about him, he was unique. You've got historians outside of the Bible who wouldn't even believe the Bible who will say, this guy did some amazing things, some miraculous things. And then they'll even talk about this guy, he, he was killed on a cross. Most people say it was for no reason. And then his body just disappeared. And nobody can give a good explanation. We stand on truth that is not just something that people wrote up one day, dreamed up one day, and put together in a book. We stand on truth that has been revealed in the scriptures by one God through multiple people. But it stands up. And it can be validated from other sources. That's what sets our beliefs apart. It's not tied to just a book. It's actually tied to an event. But God says to, to uh, Bethlehem, I'm going to raise up a king from you. And in a seemingly insignificant town, but from you is going to come this king. And he says, this king's going to be different. See, there was already kings on the throne at this time, but they were corrupt. They were puppet kings. Right? They, Israel was not really ruling over their own people. They were actually under the, the, uh, the authority of some other countries who installed their own king on the throne and said, you, you can be king as long as you do what we say. Give us taxes, you know, you know, vote the way we want you to vote, things like that. Puppet kings, right? God says, I'm going to raise up a king that's completely different. He says, that king, his origin... God speaks about where this king will be from. Not only is he born in Bethlehem, but he says his origin, his goings out and his comings are from ancient times. They are from distant past. He's saying this king, he's, he's better than David because he existed before David. This, this king that I'm going to bring out of, of Bethlehem, if you were to trace back his origin, you're not going to find him in a human but it's also going to be tied to David. It is. But it's going to go beyond David. God's saying this king's going to be different. He's going to be far better. And then he goes into, into verse 3 and kind of gets back into this judgment talk, right? But before this happens, verse 3, So the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies. So a little glimmer of hope. You, Bethlehem, there's going to be a king coming from you. And he's going to rule on my behalf. And then the Lord's going to, first the Lord's going to give over his people. Israel is in a time of waiting now. God has just revealed there is going to be a time where I'm going to raise up a ruler and he's going to bring peace, but you're going to have to wait for it. And Israel finds himself waiting on God. Waiting for that day when that king is going to come. Watching and looking. But first, they're still going to have to experience the consequences of their rebellion. The consequences of their sin against God. And so verse 3 tells us, the Lord's going to hand the people over of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. You see that word until? Time is waiting. Until. You're going to be handed over to your enemies. You're going to be enslaved until a certain time. Another time of waiting. That time, uh, Micah goes on and he says the time is uh, when the woman in labor gives birth. Now, if you just jumped into Micah chapter 5 and you're looking at verse 3, you're going, what is that talking about? What, who is the woman that's going to give birth? And if you've grown up around the church, maybe you're thinking, oh, well, that's Mary giving birth to Jesus. No, Israel was still in slavery when Jesus was born. Israel is still not ruling over their own people. Israel still does not have a king on the throne. If you were just back up a little bit in Micah, 
and go to chapter 4. Read a little context. See, that, that's the key. You want to understand what, what an author of the Bible is saying? You've got to read what he's saying in context. If you go to Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, you see Micah using the same symbolism, the same imagery about a woman giving birth. And he uses it to describe Israel going through their judgment. Israel's judgment is going to be like a woman going through labor pains. And when Israel's judgment is over, the baby has been born, so to speak. The pain ends. And so in Micah chapter 5, verse 3, what God is saying is, He's going to hand over Israel to be judged to, by their enemies. And He's going to do that for a set amount of time. They're, Israel is going to be in enslavement until their judgment is up. But the second part of verse 3, then, you know, after that judgment, after the, the labor is, is, is over, so to speak, after that time, then the rest of the king's countrymen, and your translation might say, then his brothers, or the rest of his brothers. It's talking about the king who was just mentioned. Right, the, the king that God's going to raise up from Bethlehem. <clears throat> he says, then his brothers, his countrymen. That's God's people, the Israelites. Then they will, at the second part of verse 3, they will return to be united, reunited with their people in the land. You see, because God's going to send them away from the land. He's going to send them into slavery. And God's saying, after the time of judgment, I'm going, to, I'm going to raise up this king. And, and after that time of judgment, then all these people, God's people of Israel, they're going to return back to their land. That's how you're going to know that God's plan for peace is coming to fruition. Verse 4. When God's people return to the land, he will assume his post. He meaning the king. The king from, from, from verse 2. He will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength. By the sovereign authority of the Lord his God, they will live securely. For at that time, he will be honored. God is speaking about a time of peace. Right? He, he's been saying, you're going to go into judgment. There's going to be this time where you're going to have no king. You're going to be enslaved. I'm going to raise up a king, my king, from Bethlehem. He's going to rule on my behalf. Before that happens, Israel's going to get enslaved. Israel's going to experience the consequences of their sin, their rebellion. But when that time is up, when that set time is up, that time that God has set, then God's people are going to come back to the land he's given them. God's king, who was born in Bethlehem, is going to stand up, take his throne, sit where he's supposed to, take the proper role of authority, and he's going to rule in the strength of God. That's different from these other kings who were ruling in their own strength, ruling with their own desires, or following after desires of one of the other kings, whoever they were a puppet for. God says, he's going to rule in my strength. He's going to do what God wants him to do, rule as God wants him to rule. And it describes him as a shepherd king. A shepherd king, one who's going to provide and protect God's people. One who's going to point God's people back to God. He says, that time is going to come. It's going to come, but you have to wait for it. So Israel finds themselves in a time of waiting. They, they have to wait for this king to be born. They have to wait until their time of judgment is up. And, and they have to wait until that time when the king is going to rule. It's a time of waiting. And it's waiting for peace. And so I, I start out and I say, man, I long for peace. You know, I, I long for a time when there's no chaos, when there's no violence. And, you know, I, 
I, I long for that time where, where pregnant mothers don't have to fear bringing in a child into the world because of the way the world's going. Right? I mean, that's a sad thing. To not be, to, to be fearful about bringing a child into the world because what is that child going to have to face? And every generation has been saying it, right? I mean, those of you whose kids have grown already, you were saying it when you were bringing your kids in the world, and your grandparents were saying it when they were bringing kids in the world, and, and back and back. And it just keeps going. So is there significant peace to be found, to be had, to be brought to this world, to be brought to creation, to be brought to us? God tells his people there is a time of peace coming. And in the end of verse 4, he says, not only will it be a time of peace for Israel, he says, God's people, they will live securely, for at that time, he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. God's king would be recognized by everyone. He'd be recognized as the great king, the supreme, the sovereign. And so, as a result, all of creation would know the peace and rule that comes under him. Is there a time of peace coming? There is. It, significant peace is found in the king who had his insignificant birth. Significant peace is found in the king who had an insignificant birth. That's God's plan of peace. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's, it's what we're doing as we celebrate Advent. We're waiting we're waiting for God to bring in peace. We're waiting for God's plan to come and be enacted. But it's a time of waiting. You know, Christmas answers that question that we have. Does God see what's going on? Is there a peace that can be, be had? Is there a peace that, that can tame all of creation? Is there a peace that runs deep? Is there a peace that can, can smooth over relationships? Even, even the most twisted of relationships, can it can it smooth that over? Is there a peace that I can know that would quiet the deepest angst that I have inside, that, that wrestling that I have? Is there any kind of significant peace? Christmas, and what we celebrate at Christmas, answers that question. Significant peace is found in the king who had an insignificant peace. Uh, birth. Peace is found in Christ. God's plan to bring peace, both that we can experience now and that will be experienced in all of creation, will come through Christ. Some of that we have to wait for. And we don't know when God's going to send Christ back. That's why Advent for us after the first Christmas, we're not waiting for Christ to be born. That king has been born. That's what we celebrate every December 25th, is that God sent that king, and he was born. He was born in Bethlehem, in a manger. That's what we sing about. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, right? That's what we sing about. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Those, those songs are steeped in the scripture. They're steeped in what we believe. Because they're steeped in what God has done. It's steeped in God's story. We now wait for Christ to come back. We now wait for his return. And it's at that return when the creation will know this. Some of you this morning, you need to remember that that's what we're celebrating. You need to remember that that's, that's what Christmas is about. That's what we honor uh, this, this Christmas, is that we're remembering that God sent his king. And we worship that king. What would it look like for us to live 
like God brings peace. You see, because he's going to bring peace to creation, but God brings peace that you can experience now. Inner peace, that quiets that, that deepest angst, you know, that, that puts you at peace with God. Because the world, the people of this world are not at peace with God. God's wrath is on sin. It's on judgment. Just like, just like Israel, they're rebelling. God has to judge that. People, we're not born at peace with God. We're born at odds with God. And our whole life, we wrestle with that. And we try to quiet that, that part of us that needs to know peace. We try to quiet that, that part of us that's, that's anxious and quiet. And we, and we pursue it through all kinds of different places. And none of that quiets that peace. Because none of that was ever meant to do that. Some of you already know that peace this morning. And so what we need to do is remember that this is what we're celebrating. This is what we honor, that God sent a king who brings peace. And if you remember that and you live out that peace, you actually live like you're at peace with God, then there's a little bit of a glimpse of the future that people will see in your life and in your relationships. Because as they look at you, as they look at us, a group of people who gather and call ourselves Christians and Christ followers, and we get along, and it, and, it, and, it, and it spans race, and it spans generations, and it spans families, and, and people who have different interests and different social groups, we all get together, we get along, and we are joining together for one purpose, to worship Christ, one King. People see us at peace. They're getting a little bit of a glimpse of the peace that God will bring to all creation. But if they can't see that in the way we live, what are we doing? Especially this time of year, right? We are the worst sometimes this time of year. If, if people can't see the peace that we know with God lived out in our lives, in our relationships, in our work relationships, in our family, if they can't see that, then what good is all this talk about peace this, this season? If they can't see that, then we're just joining the ranks of everyone else who's content and, set, and settles to just have those family feuds. They cover it up for the season just for the sake of peace. They pretend to get along, put on their face, have small talk, and then they go away bickering, gossiping, and hating that person even more. Those of us who know peace with God because we know Christ, we need to live like we know peace with God. And that's shown in the way we treat one another. It's shown in the way we treat our family members, even the ones we can't stand, right? Even the ones who annoy us, even the ones who like to just, like a, like a woodpecker, just keep pecking at us and just trying to get us to rise and, and to react. If we can live at peace, demonstrate peace, then they might get a glimpse of the peace that's to come. But some of you this morning might find yourself kind of in Israel's boat, right? They were rebelling against God. They, they, they were not pursuing God. They were not living in, in a way that honors God. They were, they were rebelling. And so you're wondering, well, is there any peace for me to be had? There is. God offers peace to rebellious people. God offers peace to sinful people. Every single person is a rebel against God until we place our trust in Christ. Because here, here's the bad news, right? So if that's you, you find yourself, you're rebelling against God. Uh, the bad news is that rebellion requires judgment. God's not going to let it go. He can't let it go. But I'm not saying 
that you're necessarily going to see every single consequence of your sin. I'm not saying God, that God is now watching you going, lightning strike tomorrow. Right? That's not what I'm saying. See, because something, something has happened. Right? A king has been born. And a king has died. See, the bad news is this. That God does still require judgment on sin. He can't leave it unpunished. Because of his, his righteousness, his holiness. He, he's, he's perfect. He's without blemish. God has to punish sin. His just character requires it. So that's the bad news. If you're rebelling against God, that rebellion requires judgment. And the Bible, in Romans chapter 6, Paul, the apostle, he writes and he says, Hey, the, 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 the wages of sin, what, what sin earns, is death. What that means is our rebellion deserves death. God told Adam and Eve, the day you rebel against me, the day you eat of that fruit that I told you not to eat, that day you'll surely die. They weren't struck dead right then and there. But what happened is death entered physically into the world and they start to, to decay. Sickness, disease, all that kind of stuff. But they were spiritually, the relationship they had with God was separated, broken. They died in regards to their relationship to God. Ever since then, praise God for the rain, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's not the air conditioned blowing out. <laughs> I know some of you are perking up, right? God has sent a king. And he has made a way for that judgment to have been taken care of. This is the good news. Bad news, rebellion requires judgment. The good news is that rebellion has been judged. Right? That rebellion has been judged. Sin has been judged. When Christ was born, he came and he lived a righteous life. Perfect. 100% without mistake. That law that you find in the Old Testament, all those rules, he met every single one of them. He met the requirement that God had set. Perfect. Righteous. And then he died in that state. Perfect. Righteous. And what he did is he died in your place, in my place, because God's judgment was had. Because that day that Christ was on the cross, all of God's judgment for all sin, all rebellion of all times, for all people, was all poured on Christ. All poured on the King. And then he took that to the grave. If he would have stayed in the grave, sin wins. If he would have stayed in the grave, we have nothing to celebrate, nothing to honor. But he didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the grave, which means he defeated death. Death was the ultimate impact of sin. And so now God has that righteous requirement. It's met. Sin has been judged. And, and God has made a way for those of us who are in rebellion against God to be at peace with God. He did the work. He took those steps. And he offers peace. He offers peace that you can know and experience now, today. It's that type of peace that runs deep. It's that type of, of peace that's not just superficial, but it actually sticks around. It lasts. It's eternal. It's that type of peace that goes and it quiets that, 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 that angst that we might have. It's a type of peace that can take the most violent person and change them type of peace that can take the, the, the most twisted of relationships and restore it. He offers that now. Today. So you're saying, okay, well how do I get it? If there is significant peace, like I'm describing, how do you get it? 
God says you trust in what he did through Christ. That, that's taking whatever it is you're trusting in now to quiet that, that angst, to, to get you to wherever it is you believe you're going. You take your trust off of that and you put it instead on Christ. You, you, you consider the facts. God requires judgment. I'm in rebellion. My judgment should be death. Jesus took that death for me. I trust in Jesus. I no longer have death. I get his life. I get peace. Trust is what God requires. You don't have to perform. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You have to trust that God did it. That peace is available. Because significant peace, that peace we're all looking for, that peace we all know exists somewhere, but we, maybe we can't quite put our finger on what it is or what it's supposed to look like, that peace exists. Significant peace is found in the king who had an insignificant birth. And it's a peace that we can know now, and it's also a peace that all creation will one day know. So let me end with this. If there's that significant peace, and if we know it, because we know Christ, we've trusted in Christ, what would it look like if us, in this room today, if we, just us, I mean, forget all the other churches that are gathering, what if just us today could actually live out that peace, treat others like we are at peace with God? What if in the way that we live, in the way that we treat one another, treat our friends, treat our family, because you know what? You're only as spiritually mature as you are at home. Right? I can get up here and preach to you for, it's not an hour, but like 35, 45 minutes, whatever, right? Some of you are going, no, keep going, keep going, right? I can get up here and you might be blown away. Man, he's so spiritually mature, man. But if I'm not that at home with my wife, with my kids... I'm fooling you. You are only as spiritually mature as you are around your family because that's where it's tested. It's easy. And it's easy on Sunday morning. Two hours, I can be whoever I want you to think I am. You can be whoever you want me to think I am. Your life's falling apart. It's in rocks and shambles, but you show up on Sunday morning. You can make me believe that you are is great. Never been better. And we do that. But what if we would actually live like we are at peace with God? No peace, significant peace. And people see that. And in seeing that, they get a little bit of a glimpse of that peace that is one day to come to all of creation. Don't you think people would want to know more about that? Don't you think people would start asking questions about that? I mean, if you're here this morning and you don't call yourself a Christian, you don't consider yourself a, a Christ follower, if you saw that, I mean, if you saw people who shouldn't be getting along, get along. If you see a family who should be just feuding, getting along, and, and it's, it's real and it's deep and it's lasting, if you saw that, wouldn't you at least want to know more about that? Wouldn't you at least want to know what, what's different here? We should be different. Because a king was born. And he brings significant peace. It can be experienced today, now. And it will be experienced from all creation. Is there significant peace to be had? Yes. 
Where will it come from? It comes from the King who's born Christ. And it is available for all. And all will recognize it one day, one way or another. So, Father, how great you are. You don't leave us in a state of chaos. You don't leave us uh, in our rebellion. In fact, because of your great love for us, you acted. You gave your son out of your love so that a rebellious people, people who were corrupted, people who were filled with sin, who would only pursue our own desires, we would, through Christ, be changed. And, and not in some surface level moralistic way where we just learn how to behave better and be church folk, but really change us to our core so that who we are is different, so that the way we treat others is different, so that we can pursue you and love you. And it brings a peace that's altogether different, that the world is looking for, that, that people are seeking out, and that you alone offer. So God, would you remind us of that as we prepare ourselves this Advent season to celebrate and honor Christ. And as we wait for you to send Christ back and all the world will have peace. Father, I pray for those this morning who need to know that peace. Would you open their eyes, open their hearts. Grow us all deeper, God. Stretch us. And may your word speak forth today. May your spirit take the truth that's been said this morning from your scripture and apply it to our lives. Convict our hearts where it needs to be convicted. Guide us into truth where we need to be corrected. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God is worth the wait. His promises will be fulfilled. He's a peace offering God. He doesn't leave us in our rebellious state. So go and live as people who are at peace with God. Do it freely. Do it loudly. So that others may see and get a glimpse of the peace that God brings. We'll do it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you next time.